Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and we are once again joined by Dr. Jamie Marich. She was on an episode here just a couple of months ago. She's setting a record for like the <laughs> most quickly invited back guests that we've ever had. So... And part of this is just her last episode talking about dissociation and responding to it was really well received by our audience here. And Dr. Marich has come out with a new book, uh, Trauma and the 12 Steps, and wanting to also talk about substance use for the first time today on our show. We've never addressed this in any meaningful way. So thank you so much for coming back and joining us so soon. It's my pleasure. This is a great honor to maybe have set a record as the quickest return (laughs) guest. It's funny, as much as I've achieved in my life and my career, it's these little things that really mean the most. (laughs) Yes, good. (laughs) So I'm I'm honored you you mentioned that. Good. We're so glad to have you here again, Jamie. Maybe you can remind folks who you are and what you're putting out into the world. Sure. So I'm Dr. Jamie Marich. I'm based in Northeast Ohio, but I do travel all over the world, not so much lately because of COVID-19, doing training and teaching on EMDR therapy, the intersection of trauma and addiction, dissociation, of course, and I'm also a yoga teacher and an expressive arts therapist. And yeah, I'm very happy to be talking about my new book, which is actually a revised and expanded edition of a previous book that I put out in 2012, Trauma and the 12 Steps. And this is the souped up model. So I've known Jamie for a a couple of years now through the EMDR world and become a lot more trauma sensitive through my EMDR work. And I'm one of those people that kind of have looked at 12-step programs as not necessarily being quite so trauma-informed that you kind of push back against that in in your book here. And that's, you know, you've written quite a bit, a whole book on trauma and the 12 steps. So finding a way to interweave that in there, how do you see trauma fitting into that 12-step model? So one of the reasons I was inspired to even embark on this trauma and the 12-step work is that I had the good experience of having a phenomenally trauma-informed sponsor when I first came into 12-step recovery. I am in personal recovery going on 18 years. And for me, it's always been possible for the 12 steps to be trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed, and even trauma-focused because they can weave in well with therapies like EMDR or other 
trauma modalities that may help us really get to the heart of trauma. And I think the most important thing to understand about 12-step recovery is there's a lot of non-uniformity when it comes to Mm -hmm. it, that you have meetings all over the world, and some are exactly what you said, not very trauma-informed at all. Uh, I don't think the word trauma has ever been uttered to the people at those meetings, let alone (laughs) knowing how to really address it. And you have some sponsors and some meetings and some groups that really have done their work and can create that trauma-informed space. And then the other kind of discord comes with that there's a difference between 12-step work in the community, what you might see in meetings or more in a self-help platform. And then you have treatment centers that have kind of been forged in a crucible of a lot of 12-step ideology. And that's where you can see a lot of the problems too. A lot of old school people with mentality like this is the way we've always done it. And the same thing applies there. I've seen some treatment centers that can really have a 12-step component, but also work in other things to be more trauma-focused. And there are other treatment centers I've encountered, and dare I say worked at, that it's it's really just kind of shocked and scandalized me that trauma has not really been a factor. So to, to your point, Kurt, I think a lot of the criticism I have heard about 12 steps being not trauma responsive are valid. I share a lot of those criticisms, especially when we're talking about problematic groups or treatment centers. But kind of in this spirit of both and that defines me, I've also experienced a trauma-informed passage through the 12 steps because I've been hooked with the right people throughout. What does that actually look like? Because for me, I, I've had a lot of clients who are working the 12 steps in some form. And I find that even in some of the conversations I have with them, there is this discord or this disconnect. And and whether it's to shorthand it to like spiritual bypassing or, or any of this stuff that can happen when someone is following the steps as written, so to speak, or maybe in one of these less trauma-informed or absolutely not in trauma-informed groups, like how, what does it actually look like to interweave yeah. these things? Because to me, it seems like I'm not, I guess I'm not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. nor am I in a lot of circles, which is part of why I was inspired to write this book. And whenever I talk about my trauma and the 12 steps work, it ends up being a love letter to Janet Leff, who was my first sponsor. She passed away in 2017. And she was the woman I met in 2001 when I was working in Europe. And again, she really lived the spirit of what one of the 12 step slogans would call attraction rather than promotion. And once more, that is the ideal because so much of what is actually in the AA text or other 12-step texts is very flexible. The steps, for instance, and a lot of the content within the text are meant to be suggestive only. And I think what happens is a lot of members lose sight of that because they find comfort in their rigidity or they were mentored through recovery by somebody who was, this is how you do it. This is what worked for me. And I've always said to, to people in the old school that if we're really going to make the steps and recovery more trauma responsive, we have to get that. This is the way we've always done it out of our vocabulary, because I think that's where we still see a lot of issues in, in 12 step programming, because the whole concept of, meetings and recovery in a 12-step fashion came about in 1935 when two alcoholics got together and realized the power and impact of one alcoholic talking to another. And a lot of what happened there really speaks to what we've learned about the impact of interpersonal neurobiology and community and, and, and discourse. And so I think we can still keep a lot of the 
part of that while realizing we have learned a hell of a lot since 1935 about yes. trauma and the brain. And so for people who are still kind of stuck in that this is the way it's always worked, we really have to move through that. And I think real real good trauma-informed leaders, which would include sponsors or people who work in treatment, can recognize the both and, that there's a lot that the traditional foundations of the program can still give us, but we can integrate so much of what we've continued to learn over the decades about trauma, about recovery, about like the changing face of recovery. Because something I take on in the book is how it was too pretty privileged white dudes who created this program. And then eventually some women came in and some people of color came in. Yet one of the new chapters in the book really is bringing up diversity as a trauma-informed issue and how meetings and who are coming to meetings has continued to change since 1935. And one of our commitments as people in recovery needs to be making meetings and making treatment centers places where people who are different than us would feel welcome there and not feel further shamed or ridiculed because of who they are or where they come from. And that's an, a problem I've seen yeah. in a lot of meetings and in a lot of treatment centers both. So to me, what, what trauma-informed recovery, specifically trauma-informed 12-step recovery can look like, is this idea of attraction rather than promotion, what Janet showed me. She she never tried to evangelize me, shove anything down my throat. She, she was this, this beautiful model for me of what it meant to validate pain and struggle while also challenging it. But she knew the right order in which to do it. Because when I first shared with her a little bit of my, what I like to call my life in chemicals, when I first <laughs> knew I had a problem and just thought I was crazy like other people in my life and Janet help. And I shared with her some of my story. And she was also the first person who validated a lot of my story as trauma that that mm -hmm. Jamie, this is trauma, what you experienced. And I said, but I never went to war. I, I'm not from the Vietnam era because that was what I was working on as a definition of trauma. And so the good news is that Janet had a background as a clinical social worker. And I like to say that she was trauma informed before it was cool because this was 2001, early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm glad it's a cool word now and a cool phrase and we're talking more about it. But she really had this understanding of knowing, wait, this is not just somebody lashing out. This is a traumatic reaction. And I saw her even point that out in some other folks we worked with in our community. And she was just very trauma responsive. And so when I told her about my life, she said, Jamie, after everything you've been through, it's no wonder you became alcoholic. So what now? What are you going to do about it now? And that blend of you validate the person, the person first and then you challenge them really is the heart of how I work with people nowadays. And I think it's the essence of what can make recovery trauma-informed. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. 
Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. And I think this gets to one of the key concepts of when a lot of therapists are first taught about working with substance use and whether you deal with the sobriety issue first or you deal with whatever else happens first that I know you well enough that your answer is going to be both and and you just illustrated that (laughs) but how else do you see this in the work that you do? Because, uh-huh. you know, there's so much of your personal life that you bring through your work, but how uh-huh. else do you see this in the greater clinician community having that success? Yeah. So the, the both and I'm glad you highlight that because it is absolutely imperative because I will tell you, I exist as a bridge between these two worlds. I always have. And it's one of the the two worlds, meaning the trauma mental health world and more of the traditional addiction community that's very much defined by 12-step history and involvement. And one thing I've seen is how particularly the addiction community that is more set in their ways can be very skittish about doing trauma work because we don't want to give people excuses to drink or use, or we don't want to destabilize them. And we can't do quote unquote trauma work while a person is still in initial treatment to which I obviously call bull because a lot of it is just knowing that stabilization or preparation is part of the trauma work, teaching people how to work with their body and work with skills and work with proactive lifestyle change is part of the trauma work. So in the addiction community, I've always been an ambassador for the importance of working with trauma But on the trauma mental health side of things, I can see almost the opposite problem where it's, well, let's jump in and do the trauma work, but there's not much regard given for how much damage the addiction has done. And there's not a lot of regard given for the importance of doing daily lifestyle change practices on a a single day basis, which is a lot of what 12 Steps emphasizes. And that whole idea I mentioned of validate and then challenge On the trauma mental health side of things, I can see people almost getting a little too heavy on the validation and not enough on the challenge and action where it's, oh, well, a person's acting out or a person's using because of the trauma, because of the trauma. And and yes, that compassion is good, but there's not a lot of call to action really given as part of that. And then what we can see happen is jumping into doing deeper trauma work before a person has adequate preparation skills. So part of what I have seen is, can we bring in some of what we know really works about 12-step recovery to help with whatever word you're using there, preparation, stabilization, to help with institution of daily lifestyle change? And to realize that, to to quote a cliche here, when it comes to 12 steps, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, That a lot of what is in the steps really is very golden, really does align with a lot of what we're doing therapeutically now in forms such as DBT or acceptance and commitment therapy. And it really is just, just trying to bring it all together and build bridges here instead of put up walls. And that's my political commentary on what the work does. <laughs> With the with the twelve steps, the the stuff that really works, I think there's probably in our audience a, a wide array of folks, mm-hmm. and and my suspicion, given 
all of the news that there is lots more alcohol being purchased right now. There's a lot more people stuck in drinking, doing stuff that all therapists really should be doing some of this work because I think a lot more addiction and alcoholism has been showing up. What would you say are the pieces of the 12 step that, you know, like naming them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what are the 12 step pieces that you think are really effective and that therapists should know about? Yeah, I I think what I mentioned already, the importance of one person reaching out to another, specifically Mm -hmm. one person who knows what you're going through, more or less, reaching out to another, because that really is kind of the the therapeutic magic of AA that, that the founders, Bill and Bob, stumbled on, because they had both been through the mill with psychoanalysis, psychiatry, pure religious healing and found that there was just something about one person connecting to another. So for instance, with everything happening with COVID, I know my, not even as a professional, but as a recovering person, I've been really committed to make sure that we're getting our meetings on zoom or online so that people Mm -hmm. do not lose connection, even with physical distancing. And I have the great privilege of, of being sponsored by somebody who's from the old school, but he's incredibly progressive right now. And one of the first challenges he made in, in this first week of physical distancing was call your people, like call your people who are in your network, people you've made sponsoring, maybe folks who were coming to meetings at one point, but they have fallen away a little bit. And it's really important to check in on people. Cause I think that was my first concern when I heard what was going into effect with physical yeah. distancing guidelines is this can be a death sentence for people mm-hmm. because yeah. we have just realized, and even in a, through a non AA lens, there's a lot of important knowledge out there about the power of connection in healing and recovery. And so I think that that has been imperative is to make sure that people stay connected to not isolate because in isolation is when shame tends to brew and fester. Yes. So even if you're promoting online connection, it is, it is certainly better than nothing right now. Uh, so I think that's, that's one of the real key ingredients. Another key ingredient, and I'm not even getting to the steps themselves yet, is what I referenced a bit ago, and that is the importance of some kind of daily lifestyle change mm-hmm. or some kind of daily practice that you do to keep yourself, we might say clean and sober, but in a broader context to keep yourself well. Because this is something that any good 12-step sponsor will work on with their folks, which is what do you do when you first wake up in the morning? How do you start your day? Maybe how do you work the steps into your day? Maybe it's calling someone that you work into your day. If you're a praying person, maybe it's a prayer offering that you work into your day. And I'll share my story because it's a fun story. I I can't (laughs) not tell this story when I talk about the 12 steps. So Janet, my my first sponsor who I mentioned to you, she knew I I was still pretty God conscious at the time that I, I sought out help. And so her recommendation to me was to start my day with a prayer asking God to help me to stay sober on a, on, you know, just for today. And I said, Janet, I'm not a morning person. Like I pray, but not in the morning. Like I'm lucky if I get out of bed, go to the bathroom, take a, maybe take a shower and then get to work. And she said, Oh, you go to the bathroom. Isn't that interesting? And I'm like, okay, where are you going with this? And she gave me what's called a 24-hour book, which is a day-to-day meditation book that you can read in recovery. And she said, put this on your toilet seat because chances are if you're going to use the bathroom in the morning, you'll have to pick this book up, right? And if you're sitting there doing your thing, maybe you'll actually read the page of this book. 
and it'll give you a little bit of spiritual insight. Maybe you'll remember to pray. And she goes, can you try it for like 20 to 30 days? 18 years later, I'm still doing it. I don't have to put it on oh my, my toilet seat anymore, <laughs> but I have to start my morning reading something spiritual and praying. And, and I do a lot more things now. I've become kind of a morning person. It's really kind of weird. And any good sponsor has a lot of tools and tips and tricks like that, that they can help a person work with that will give them some day-to-day thing to really focus on. And this is where, as a trauma clinician on the other side of things, there are some folks I've worked with, I wish I had a 12-step program to send them to, or something that really worked with them more on the day-to-day, instead of, okay, you just come to see me once a week, twice a week, and maybe you work some of these skills in between. And that's where I think the sponsorship, the accountability, and even if you don't have a a formal sponsor, having a support network, people you can call who know what you're going through, people you can text even. I use a lot of texting with with my network to to keep you accountable. Like, have you prayed today? Have you been doing the last couple days with with your day-to-day plan? Because the other thing I, I mention in the book, and I teach this pretty adamantly too, is even if you're a non 12 stepper and you look at all the different recovery programs, modalities, models that are out there, the one common denominator I have truly found is the importance of lifestyle change. Yeah. And what small measures are you taking on a day-to-day basis? I have to admit that as I'm hearing you talking, I'm like, man, I've read this stuff recently. And then it's like, oh, yeah, because I just read your book to prepare for this episode. (laughs) But, (laughs) (laughs) But... You know, this is also that thinking versus action that I think you described so well in the book. And, you know, when I first was going across it, you know, this seems like that top down versus bottom up approach. And Mm -hmm. that that activation seems to be such an important part for so many people, both in and outside of recovery, but especially in recovery and especially with that trauma piece to it. Mm Actions speak louder than words. That's something my preschool teacher taught me, and it applies across the board with with recovery. And uh, even chapter six of the AA Big Book, as Janet always liked to point out to me, is called Into Action, Not Into Thinking. And this idea that we can act our way into better thinking easier than we can think our way into better acting. And that is a lot of what I see happening in in good 12-step cultures is really challenging people into what is the day-to-day action that you're going to take here. And then another mechanism of action that is particularly helpful can be the steps themselves. If if you modify the language issues that may be a struggle for you, because that's some of the, the problems that, that can get brought up with the steps is, well, this word powerless in step one. I mean, let's just start with step one. And that word powerless is a minefield for a lot of people. It's we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or insert whatever addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. And the criticism that I get from a lot of trauma folks is, but isn't the point of healing work to empower traumatized people? And here you're having people admit powerlessness, and a lot of people really struggle with admitting powerlessness. And how it was unpacked for me was this, is that I am not admitting in that step that I'm a powerless person. What I am admitting is that I'm powerless over alcohol, and that translates to if I put alcohol in my body, chances are it's going to win. If I put opiates in my body, chances are it's going to win. 
And when it was explained to me in that light, I had no problem admitting powerlessness, which to me is, is a very spiritual concept that's congruent with Eastern thought, which is that when we surrender, we actually open ourselves up to something that is beautiful and new potentially coming in. So I, one thing I advocate in my work and in the book is that if people are struggling with the language in some of the steps, we can probably find a better way to word it. <laughs> or, and that is where I'm a very liberal, open-minded 12-stepper, that I don't believe just because it was written this way in 1935 means we have to keep the wording that way. Another problem area that can come up in step, step six is use of the phrase character defects. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Yeah. So for instance, in the Workaholics Anonymous program, which is one of the many 12-step spinoffs, they recognize that that's probably going to be a trigger for people. And they say, just replace it with negative coping skills. Like, okay. what are these things we have done to get by that have ended up causing us more problems in the long run and causing others in our lives more problems in the long run. And my boyfriend, who's also in recovery as well, just wrote it, and he's a therapist, just wrote a really amazing piece looking at character defects as parts mm. through the structural dissociation model. And he said, maybe what we call character defects are just parts that need to be healed. So the, to me, there is no limit to what we can do here with possibly relanguaging some of these steps. Because Kurt, you know this from studying with me, that part of the, the whole ethic of trauma-informed is watch our language right. and realize that a lot of language we use may not be optimally trauma-informed, but that there's always a modification. There's always a way we can explore it. So whether I'm working with a client or working with somebody in the community because I still sponsor people and have friends that are recovering folks. It's like, if something's not resting well with you, let's unpack it because in that activation may be part of the answer a or B, it could be that you just need another way to express it. And then finally the big offender in the steps <laughs> is the God language, which doesn't mm -hmm. work for a lot of folks. And that, that's another issue that I tackle in the book is the need to be more opening, open and accepting of all spiritual paths or people who choose not to embrace a spiritual path. AA and the 12 steps have had a long history of not being friendly to people who identify as atheist or agnostic. And we can give lip service like, oh, just call God group of drunks or when you hear God, replace it with something else, and higher power can be anything you want it to be. And in the book, I interview my sponsor's husband, who is a card-carrying professed atheist from when he was seven years old. And I downright asked him, you know, Mike, how have you been sober over 30 years in AA and kept coming to meetings? And he said, because my first sponsor could have cared less what I believed in, didn't believed in. He didn't fight me when I said, you know, I didn't really want to hear much about this God language, but he still found enough in the rest of the steps and in the power of the fellowship and some of these lifestyle changes that we managed that he stayed around all these years. And there's a beautiful sub-community called Atheists and Agnostics in AA. They have an amazing website called AA Agnostica. And they share their stories about how like mainstream AA hasn't worked for them, but they have still found some value in the steps.
and some other parts of the program. And they have their own conference and they have their own literature. And even as somebody who believes in God and spirituality, I really love their literature because I think it's very real. It's very honest. And it shows that we have other things besides God we can lean on. So yes, if people struggle with the God language, I validate it because don't we all, even those of us who might believe at one point or another. And I think it's important to embrace what I call in the book, spiritual diversity, that all of us look at this a very different way. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Off that point, and also something that you mentioned earlier about inclusivity and that being you know, very much the conversation of social change right now. Mm-hmm. What are the suggestions of making 12 steps and this whole process more inclusive and welcoming to marginalized communities and yeah. more, more inviting? I think the key thing is we got to really, got to get our heads out of our butts. I might say a swear <laughs> word, but I don't know if you're open you can, to that you on can, the show. You can cuss. This is the internet. Okay. Yeah. You got to get your heads out of your asses and stop being an asshole to people is really what it comes down to. I mean, I've often said that, that the key to trauma-informed care is you know, just stop being an ass to people. Really, yeah, and, yeah. and that can be easier said than done for a lot of folks because I do think we we as people can find comfort in our rigidities. And in the book, I cite Nadia Boltzweber, who is a reverend uh, in the Lutheran Church, super progressive. I love her stuff. I've heard her preach. She's also in long-term recovery through AA. She's very out about it. And I heard her speak at a festival last year, and she goes, I think as humankind, our drug of choice is thinking that we're better than other people. And she really called for an end to that, that if we want to really bring about change, it's dropping these rigidities that we might, because I know I can get in that mindset, like I'm sober. I know how to deal with my feelings without drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and uh. I can sometimes forget what it's like. You know, I've had EMDR. I, I'm, I'm healthy. Yeah, bullshit. I mean, I still have a lot of areas <laughs> in my life where, where I'm working on. And so I, I think that's, that's the key here is realizing that we're all still struggling on one level or another. And another big part of inclusivity is... And I take on the privilege word in chapter 11, knowing that a lot of white folks who are longtime 12-steppers might not like me doing that, but hell, I have to. And I explain privilege as it's, it's realizing that it's not saying your life hasn't been hard, but it's saying that there are certain things you have never had to deal with in your life that other people coming in may have had to deal with. And so don't assume that just because something was some way for you means it was that way for everybody else. And to me, that's a big key to both checking privilege and recognizing that we, we have to make spaces more, more inclusive. And I mean, I've seen it happen in 12-step recovery where, I mean, I'm not even getting into race and ethnicity and gender and sexual identity yet, but there can be this pissing contest between alcoholics versus addicts. Like, well, here in AA, we only talk about alcohol. We don't want a certain element coming to our meeting, meaning people who use drugs. And that often has a subtext of black and brown folks. 
who come mm. from certain neighborhoods, right? And the reality is, I mean, I know very few people out there who are pure alcoholics or pure addicts. That yeah. at, at this point, there's just been so much cross addiction that meetings have to be places where, where people can feel open and welcome. And I share my own story how for a lot of years, I knew I had a problem with drugs, but I didn't think alcohol was that big of a deal. And in the end, I realized it was all going to kill me. And I was able to make that connection because Janet and the meetings I ended up choosing to attend didn't really get into those shouting matches about alcoholics versus addicts. So I think even if you take away some of these other issues, we have to look at at that basic too. I'm hearing a lot of being very thoughtful, listening, being open. Mm -hmm. And, And all of the things that you've talked about have really been about if we are too rigid in, you know, kind of how we think about the steps even, or how we, how we approach the work or how we approach other people, that's going to get in our way. And so it really is this, this place of learning and listening and, Mm -hmm. and acceptance and kind of playing with the language almost and playing with, with those things. And and maybe play is the wrong word. I'm, I'm not thinking of the right word, but, but really being able to dig into what it is and not allowing language or limitations to get in the way of what's going to be helpful. Very well summarized. <laughs> and even as you were talking, I'm thinking that that's the essence of what Bill and Bob found, I think, is, mm-hmm. is two people talking to each other. I think the barrier maybe is that they were from such similar backgrounds, they almost had too much in common. And now yeah. the challenge for us can be, how do you talk to somebody who's maybe from a completely different background than you, but realize there's a lot of common threads here, which is that alcohol tried to kill us, that we had feelings we tried to bury. Yeah. Uh, and maybe what can we learn from difference? Because I think when we're willing to talk about our differences, we may see the world through a different angle, which helps us to be less rigid. And fundamentally, anytime we can bring more flexibility and softness into our body-mind complex, it helps us to, to grow, especially through trauma. So another point I make in the book is how spiritual abuse is a real thing for many people who are coming Mm -hmm. into recovery, particularly queer folks, LGBTQ plus folks, that religion, that God has very much been used as the weapon in a lot of constructs or a lot of contexts, I should say. So even a person who has been wounded by God, them coming into a meeting or a treatment center, even this language of higher power can freak them out with good reason. And so are we willing to acknowledge that as opposed to take on more of this rigidity of, well, you got to get a higher power. You got to get something that isn't you. But I think when we validate the pain first, then people might be open to finding something that works for them. And another kind of hill I'm willing to die on in this book is the idea that Eastern meditation, yoga, any type of non-Judeo Abrahamic spiritual practices are actually very appealing to people who have been spiritually traumatized or spiritually abused in more of an Abrahamic faith background. Because, yeah, I hear a lot of people in meetings who are more Christian-oriented say things like, you know, yoga, meditation, you know, it's just more New Age bullshit. And I challenge that all the time. Like, is it New Age bullshit or is it giving people an avenue where they can commune with something that is spiritual but isn't laden with all these triggers of how they were raised? I think that's a really good point. 
where can people find all of your stuff and find your books? The simplest website I can give people is traumamadesimple.com. So that's the resources site I have set up for any of my books with trauma in the title including Trauma and the 12 Steps, this new and expanded edition, which is out from North Atlantic Books here in July of 2020. So I have the link to purchase the new book on the front page, yet also be aware that the page is full of everything I've done for free online. I have links to every podcast interview I've done, which this one will be up there too. Uh, interviews I've, I've done in print, some blogging I've done is up there. And then obviously my video resources, I have a pretty extensive YouTube channel. I'm Jamie Marich on YouTube, where I do, again, more interviews, but also uh, skills. So some of these yoga meditation things that I try to do for a very applicable, widely applicable audience, uh, some recovery-based meditations. So yeah, the easiest place for, to find me is traumamadesimple.com. You can also look up my name, .com, and then my company is instituteforcreativemindfulness.com. So if you're interested in pursuing a professional training with me or other members of my team, uh, of which I'm proud to say Kurt is one of our consultants and consultants in training in the program, uh, you can look up the business website there. And we will include links to all of that on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're over there, click on over to the Therapy Reimagined new and updated website, therapyreimaginedconference.com, and find out what we're doing here in September with a really cool virtual conference. And for the most up-to-date information on that, uh, please check out that over there. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Jamie Marich. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.